This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Death is often a taboo subject, but not for an Ottawa-based doctor who talks openly about it with his patients. His new computer algorithm can predict the end of life in years, months, and even weeks. We speak to the doctor behind this end-of-life calculator to learn about the benefits and potential drawbacks. And... The next three months are the busiest for Canadians leaving the cold weather for sunnier climes. But this year, more and more are following the lead of Zoomers who've led the way in swapping fly and fry vacations for food and culture trips. But first, hear your Zoomer headlines from around the world. New American numbers show cancer death rates have dropped 27% over 25 years beginning in 1991. That translates to about 2.6 million fewer cancer deaths than would have been expected if death rates stayed at their peak in 1991. Lifestyle changes and early detection have led to lower rates of the four major cancers, lung, breast, prostate, and colorectal. Here in Canada, mortality rates for those diseases have declined 2% a year in the same period. However, melanoma and cancers of the liver, thyroid, uterus, and pancreas are on the rise. CES is the largest tech trade show in the world, and AARP CEO Joanne Jenkins took center stage to urge designers, home builders, and other innovative leaders to keep boomers in mind as they develop and create new products and communities, because adults over the age of 50 are a rapidly growing market for the kind of technology being showcased here. She's looking for more innovation to help reduce social isolation and to allow older people to age in place. The wife of the founder of Amazon is poised to become the world's richest woman if his fortune is split equally after their divorce. 54-year-old Jeff Bezos and his 48-year-old wife Mackenzie are ending their marriage after 25 years. Bezos is worth an estimated $151 billion, and according to reports, they do not have a prenup. The world's oldest barber is turning 108 in March, and he's still cutting hair full-time. I says I'm old when I can't do anything. I'm working, that's okay. That's Anthony Mancinelli of New York, who's worked five days a week since he was 11. His boss says Anthony never calls in sick, like other younger employees who complain about knee and back problems. Guinness World Records recognized the centenarian as the oldest working barber when he was a mere 96. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We are a death-denying society, but are attitudes changing? 
Yes, says the doctor who's telling patients when they'll die based on a new 25-question algorithm that collects health information and data from across Ontario. Ottawa-based Dr. Peter Tanisaputro believes many elderly patients want to know exactly how long they have to live. This new end-of-life calculator is currently being tested in a pilot project with the goal of making it available across the province and the country. Some people wouldn't want to know how much time they have left on this earth. In our experience, you know, I'm a palliative care physician and I do home visits for my patients. Most of the conversations that I have are quite positive and a lot of the conversations that we have ultimately end up being very helpful. A lot of people do their end-of-life planning when they know that they're closing to that stage. And without that information, I think a lot of people walk blindly, right? And they do things, uh, they seek out medical care that might not be completely appropriate. So tell me about your algorithm. What's it called and how does it work? Sure. It's called RESPECT. And essentially, there's 25 questions that people answer. And they're very simple questions. You know, your age, your sex, uh, what kind of chronic conditions you have, so what kind of diseases you have. But it also asks questions about your level of function. So whether or not you can shop for yourself, whether or not you can prepare your own meals, whether or not you can toilet, you know, independently by yourself. And essentially, you know, these are questions that are predictive of how long you have to live. So based on the questions that you answer, it will spit back an estimate of your life expectancy. How close is the estimate? Does it say uh, you have weeks, months, or years, or does it say December 24th? Mm, Yeah, we're not quite that precise. You know, it'll be a bit scary if we were able to be that precise, but it does give you quite a low range of estimates if you're dying. So the calculator is meant for people who are frail. So for the healthy, you know, we would give pretty wide range. But for people who are actually dying, you know, we can say that, you know, you might have four weeks to live or three weeks to live because, you know, the signs of dying are pretty clear. You know, I think there's a misconception out there that death and dying is hard to predict and that they're not clear signs. But in our experience and what our algorithm is showing is that there are clear signs and we use the data to kind of show that. With something like cancer, Generally, the doctor can tell you if you have weeks, months, or years. How is what you do different than that? Yeah, that's a great question. No, I think one point to mention is that only, you know, about one in three people die of cancer. You know, two in three die of other diseases like heart disease or COPD or renal failure. And for these other populations, these other people, often we don't give a prognosis. And secondly, you know, I think even with cancer patients, often, you know, as a clinician, we're a bit shy about discussing prognosis because we're afraid to get it wrong. What we do is we provide objective estimates based on the experience of other Ontarians. And we put a hard number based on, again, you know, that big data of all the collective experience of Ontarians previously. But even with cancer, I would say that it's hard to know, you know, do I have one month or do I have three months to live? As a clinician, before this tool, I have a hard time talking to my patient and saying, well, it might be one month or it might be three months or it might be one year. Those weeks and months actually make a big difference. And so with this tool, you know, we can get a bit more precise in terms of the estimate that we give to our patients. Do you think that there is a change in general in society and the way people are looking at death? Are they being more open about it, confronting it more? In Canada, we don't like to talk about death and and what that looks like. And I think slowly we're making progress, but we're nowhere close to, you know, anywhere 
Yeah, like the Netherlands, for example. You know, I heard a recent story from the Netherlands that a grade three teacher, she was dying of breast cancer, and as part of her class project, she made the students build her a coffin. I know it sounds, you know, quite quite ghastly, right? And all of us, you know, have that kind of knee-jerk reaction, like, wow, you know, that's incredibly morbid. But in a society like that, where death and dying is talked about openly, it wasn't actually taken negatively. It was taken very positively. I see changes, number one, with this whole issue of medically assisted dying, where I guess it's about control, but also a lot of discussion around what's a good death. The reason why we built our tool is that in order for you to have a good death, a good quality of life um, when you're dying, you have to recognize that you are actually dying. Part of the big challenge is that sometimes we don't know when to take a step back or the healthcare system is built so that we treat, 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 right? And a tool like this, you know, that tells you how long you have to live and tells the clinician how long their patient has to live, it helps them evaluate that situation a bit better. How widely accepted and widely used do you hope this will become? We hope everyone can use it. It's going to be for public release in 2019, and we specifically made it so that a patient or their loved ones or their families, caregivers, can actually fill it out. So it's very simple to use. And unlike other tools out there where it's very dependent on the clinician, on the physician or the nurse to fill it out, we provide a tool that's very simple to answer for people. That was Dr. Peter Tanisaputro with the Bruyere Research Institute. Make sure to join me for more on this topic on The Last Taboo on our sister station, Vision TV, Monday night at 10. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, Canadian Zoomers are changing up their traditional fun-in-the-sun winter getaways. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP. A new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. It's the busiest travel season for Canadian Zoomers. While many are still choosing popular hotspots like Mexico and Cuba, they're exploring them in a different way, in search of more food, culture, and adventure instead of the old beachfront all-inclusive. Zoomer magazine editor Vivian Vassos dropped by to explain how Zoomers are the driving force behind this trend. Our readers tell us that when they're trying to look at where they're going next, and they go a lot of places, between three and five trips a year, they are looking at new destinations, and that's over 70% of our readers. And experiencing new cultures is 40% of our readers. So this is a big thing. I still think there's value in getting a bit of vitamin D and going somewhere and feeling the sun because we need it in the winter in Canada. And And I would never say don't go to the sun, but make sure you add those elements that are going to make the experience much deeper. And our readers, again, are already doing that. Culinary travel is a big thing for them. Historical travel is a massive thing for them. And then through our travel club, we went to Northern Italy for our for 10th anniversary trip. So 17 readers went to Northern Italy and experienced Northern Italy mainly through the food and wine. But then discover there's so much more to Italy and Northern Italy and Italian food and wine and how it's made and, and who the people are behind it. And it changes your whole perspective in a really positive way. These are now Zoomer trips and in partnership with other companies. Our biggest partner right now in the Zoomer Travel Club is Go Ahead EF, so they're education first, which is really interesting because travelers are looking for something deeper. They're looking for something beyond the fly and fry. Zoomers are doing the multi-gen thing. We've been talking about this for seven years at least. We've been talking about culinary travel as a huge marker as to where our readers want to go next. 
it was a long time when, you know, I would make sure to try to book certain restaurants and do all of that until it clicked like, oh, a lot of this trip is for the food. You know, it didn't kind of click in until I saw the words culinary travel and and was okay with uh, saying, hey, I want to travel to eat. Culinary may come across as a bit highbrow. It may come across as maybe difficult or expensive to achieve, but Virtuoso, which is one of the biggest luxury travel advisory networks in the world, has now named it as a category of travel, along with multi-gen, along with river cruising. You would normally think cruising is the trend, but river cruising. So again, it's specific. Our demographic has been doing it for a long time, especially Canadian Zoomers. They've made the river cruising market in Europe. Why river cruising? You have a deeper experience. You can hop off the boat. You unpack once. You can see three, four, five different countries. The chefs go off ship, bring food, bring groceries, bring all that stuff that you can cook on the ship. It's a small group of people, so it's 100 people, and typically it's about 100 people. As opposed to 1,000. As opposed to 1,000, and not just cruising, but if you think about rather than going to these 1,200, 1,500-person resorts, We might go there for a couple of days just to get our vitamin D, but then we're going to Havana. So it's a deeper thing. The Zoomer demographic, they've said to us very clearly in a lot of different surveys that we've taken that new cultures and new countries are the first things they think about. And I'm talking 70 to 75% have been telling us this for more than five years. So again, we're ahead of the curve. You still have to be careful no matter where you go. Guides are important. Mm -hmm. Staying in the right neighborhoods, doing that kind of research, it's all very important. And again, travel advisors and agents can help you with that. Tour directors and tour, tour companies can help you with that. And this is why when we talk about the Travel Club and creating this idea of how Zoomers travel now and be able to take these experiences that are really important to them that they can take home with them. It's very much about health and wellness as well because it's a holistic approach to it. And we're not talking going to a yoga boot camp and not talking for a week. We're talking about experiencing things of the land and really feeling it and tasting it and tasting it with the people that have created it, that know where all of the ingredients have come from. So wellness travel, is that no longer just a spa veg out? Absolutely. Wellness travel can mean a lot of different things. We want to do yoga. We want to exercise, but we want to exercise our minds as well. And this idea of lifelong learning is as healthy for you as running on the beach every day. So when you combine these two things together, it's a much greater experience. What about language learning? There are places you can learn the language, but you need to be prepared to stay and really research the schools. But again, it's really good for you. Spain is another place where you can learn Spanish and it's almost trying to go more local, whether it's staying with local hosts or an Airbnb type of place or bread and breakfast. Does the popularity of the cooking and experience shows have anything to do with this trend? I would say yes, it does. I think it is one of those things, though, that you can also bring home. You can learn to chop an onion and you can learn to taste the difference between maybe a sweeter red and a drier red. And you can learn these things in not a lot of time. Plus, there is the idea of bragging rights, of course, to be able to say that I was in Bologna and I had the real Bolognese sauce and and I watched a chef make it. And we're heading into the heaviest part of the travel season. So where do you predict the hot destinations will really be this year? It's going to be places where you can do double duty. I still think people will be going to places that are warm. I still think that you will be looking at 
places like Mexico, but doing Mexico City and going then to a beach or vice versa. I think, again, Cuba, I think that South America is going to be picking up more. Um, a lot of people are traveling to places that we haven't traveled in the past. Colombia is a big one. Quito, Ecuador, so experiencing those places and very little jet lag because they're straight down. Europe is going to be huge uh, again this year. Our readership is definitely going to Europe, everywhere in Europe. It doesn't matter. And Greece, I think, is going to make, again, an even bigger comeback because you have the history and then you have the islands. So you can do that sort of double duty trip. There's also some things that are coming that I think are important to us as well from a remembrance standpoint. D-Day is happening in June. It's the biggest. It's the 75th anniversary. So I think France is going to see a push this year because it's it's important to us as Canadians, as military and respect and reverence for that. And I think we'll see that kind of travel. That was Zoomer Magazine executive editor Vivian Vassos. You can join the Zoomer Travel Club online at everythingzoomer.com slash travel club. And find us at Instagram at ZoomerMagTravel and at Libby's Nimer. I'm Libby's Nimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a rock icon celebrates his 74th birthday. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. The Smithsonian Institute has declared 2019 the Year of Music and plans to celebrate with activities and events, including making public 100,000 pages of unpublished music by Duke Ellington. The Washington, D.C. Museum is home to the Jazz Masterworks Orchestra, the Chamber Music Society, and Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. In England, the 15th Annual London Art Fair is on this weekend, allowing emerging galleries to showcase the freshest contemporary art from across the globe. Critics have panned a production of Les Mis, which is now on stage in Tehran. They say the rules in keeping with the Islamic State have changed the story entirely. And the Harbin International Ice and Snow Sculpture Festival has opened in northern China. Billed as the world's biggest snow and ice festival, it runs through February 5th. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, singer-songwriter Rod Stewart celebrated his 74th birthday. Stewart is one of Britain's best-selling musical artists, and he's had quite a journey throughout his career. He began singing in the clubs of London in the 60s. He was recruited by guitarist Jeff Beck to be the lead singer of his new group, and at the time, Stewart had such stage fright that he'd sometimes hide behind the speakers. He left the Jeff Beck group along with fellow member Ronnie Wood to join the Small Faces, which with the lineup change simply became the Faces. Then he went out on his own for a solo career. His first and second solo albums were well-received, but it was his third album, Every Picture Tells a Story, that brought him popular and critical acclaim. Right now we'll hear Rod Stewart's massive hit from that album, When it was released back in 1971, it topped the charts in the U.S., the U.K., in Canada, and all around the world. Here is Maggie May. Wake up, Maggie, I think I got something to say to you. That was Rod Stewart 
with Maggie May. Stewart celebrated his 74th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.